Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Hopes raised for FTX creditors, new management reportedly growing more optimistic about how much money can be recovered. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'll discuss this and more with a former Fed economist turned investor, Joe Chow. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Uh, Good to be with you again, Ash. It's great to have you here. Before we get to the interview, let's take a look at our latest price analysis. We're starting with some all-important macroeconomic news, propitious coincidence that we have Joe here to discuss it. The U.S. economy grew by 2.9% in the fourth quarter of 2022 on an annualized basis. There's a slightly lower GDP growth than in the previous quarter. Major cryptocurrencies appear to be reacting well to the news. This could be because the slowing growth means the Fed might, highlight might, slow down the pace of its rate hikes. Bitcoin price has been reacting positively lately whenever it seems the Fed will be less hawkish going forward. Speaking of Bitcoin, it has regained the $23,000 threshold. It's up 2.5% on a 24-hour basis. We saw Bitcoin hit a new multi-month high of $23,700 on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Ether has snapped out of its recent underperformance streak relative to Bitcoin. Ether is up more than 4% on a 24-hour basis. It's back above $1,600 after dipping to $1,530 on Wednesday. We're also keeping an eye on BUSD. That's Binance's stablecoin. According to data from CoinGecko cited by CoinDesk, the supply of BUSD fell by $1 billion over the past week. It has suffered a decline of 30% since early December. As questions over fund management at Binance continue to swirl. One final token we're looking at today is Aptos, the project founded by former Meta engineers, continues to attract attention after a sloppy start. Today's rally has extended its weekly gains by a whopping 130% on a trailing seven-day basis. Obviously, some pretty significant momentum there. Okay, viewers, it's time to join the conversation. Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones later on this show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is free. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Joe Chow is a former Fed economist. He's now a partner at Millennia Capital. Joe, welcome back to Real Vision Crypto. Pleasure to have you here as always, man. Good to see you, Ash. Um, Hope you're having a great start to the day. I am indeed. Joe, macroeconomic news is right in your wheelhouse. As a former Fed economist, what's your take on this slowing GDP data? Yeah, so I was listening you know, to the radio reading the news this morning. So the data is actually um, an interesting one because uh, in 2022, in the first uh, fourth quarter, we had two negative quarters of negative GDP. So that was Q1, Q2. Then Q3, we had a pretty strong number, as you can see here in the chart. Q4, the number kind of slowed down. And um, so what that really means for Fed policy, I think, is really a few folds. One is um, um, I think this number is a good number because it increases the odds of a soft landing. What that means is uh, perhaps the economy was so strong that even though the Fed sort of suddenly breaks on, on the economy and raise rates at the fastest pace um, um, you know, in, in decades, the underlying economy is actually uh, doing okay. And what that means is whether it's for uh, corporate earnings, whether it's for business and consumer balance sheet, the at least in the economy in Q4 was doing fine. Some of the you know uh, commentators were uh, fearing that you know we might be heading to a severe recession. I think in all likelihood this number rules out that, that possibility. 
and I think this number just adds in um, a lot of weight to the possibility that we're gonna we may we may be in a recession. We're definitely in a market reset, but the if we're in a recession in Q1 or Q2 of this year 2023, it would be softer because, for example, we're going from 2.9, let's say we go down to a negative number because there's enough of a buffer, right? 2.9, the chances of Q1 or Q2 GDP being in a positive territory, slightly negative, is much higher than if let's say we're at 0.1% going to like negative four. So that's what it means for economics. And then for Fed policy, you know, I would say all things equal, this number would add a little bit more probability to, to the odds that they might raise 50. But I, I, but I still think that right now, um, uh, both the Fed and the market seem to think that the Fed's on track to raise another 25 gifts in the, in the meeting next week. Uh, but this number definitely gives a little bit more room to the Fed to sort of tighten a little bit further. Um, I think we're now we're in this market environment where bad news, good economic news is bad news for the market because good economic news means the Fed is going to tighten further, which you know would just kind of put more, uh, put more downward pressure on the risk assets, including Nasdaq stocks, S&P, and, and crypto uh, prices. Yeah, those who have been mar watching markets for a while know this weird upside-down world of bad news is good news with regard to the Fed and uh, what might be happening. But Joe, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but it sounds as though you're giving this almost a Goldilocks scenario. It sounds as though you think this is this kind of perfect balance here uh, that the Fed uh, can sort of maintain. By the way, while we're talking about this, we should put up uh, a chart to take a look at the other side of the equation, the other uh, side of the Scylla and Charybdis uh, that the Fed is trying to steer between. What you're looking at uh, right now is the 12-month percent change consumer price index, not seasonally adjusted. And this is uh, this is all items that we're looking at here. Uh, so Joe, we know what the problem is. Uh, those who have been watching this show, of course, uh, certainly do. And that's the fact that inflation has been far, far too high, heading up near the double digits at peak. Uh, give us your take on this chart and the broader context on inflation. Yeah, so I think starting with the December uh, numbers, that um, and these numbers came out in the last few weeks, um, I feel investor sentiment has really uh, improved. And you see that both in public and private markets. So I operate mostly in private markets now. Um, and you know when I work with other funds or and when I work with brokers, what I'm hearing is, that um, there's more buyers coming back into the market in the, in the private markets, and that includes uh, private equity, venture capital, uh, et cetera. Now, in public markets, we're seeing you know um, pretty good strength in the in, in the broader uh, equity markets. So I think that's a reflection of the investor sentiment improving, which I think is a reflection of the fact that we've probably seen a worst of in, uh, inflation. Um, you know, when December, uh, some of the inflation numbers, the month over month change, which is basically if a dollar, you know, actually went down to like 99 cents, even it was a negative uh, month, over, month over month, the inflation number became a negative number. I think that number really gave a lot of confidence to, to market watchers that the worst of inflation is over. We've seen peak inflation last year, inflation is going down. And if inflation was the root of all evils, then if the root cause goes away, then you can sort of speculate that the, uh, extrapolate that these symptoms might become better. So, you know, so 2022, we saw peak inflation, now inflation is going down. So that's the good news. Um, and that's why you're seeing more buyers come to the market because now, whether it's um, uh, investor sentiment that's improving, whether it's um, sort of uh, uh, treasury yields um, and, and those numbers kind of coming down, moderating, and that's just you know adding a little more a little bit more sentiment towards uh, risk uh, investors, equity investors, crypto investors. Um, in terms of outlook wise, you know I think the concern for most economists and, and investors is sort of where inflation is going to end up. Um, because right now inflation is still running at you know very ele elevated levels. They are uh, they you know we've seen the worst of it is come down, but it hasn't gone back to normal. A normal inflation is two to three percent. That's what the Fed would like to see. So basically, the way to think about Fed policy and inflation is the Federal Reserve would like to keep its benchmark rate at about 50 basis points higher than the uh, average inflation. So right now, for example, uh, inflation is now down to core inflation is down to what in the four to five percent range. You know, the goal, and I think based on the Fed's forecast uh, and some of the, you know, Wall Street economists' forecasts, maybe inflation is going, has gone, has peaked, but it's going down. So depending on when that inflation goes back to sort of that zone of 2 to 3%, that's when the Fed, that's where the Fed might begin to sort of pivot and cut rates. Um, so the question really is, we know inflation is going down. The question is how fast is it going down and when is it going back to that normal zone? Um, and that's sort of that's probably when you see the end of the tunnel for this uh, Fed uh, tightening cycle.
Joe, you know, I think it's such a pleasure to have you here and give our audience this perspective. Obviously, when you speak about this, you sound like a former policymaker. You sound uh, like a guy who was in the room at the Fed uh, hashing through this. You actually worked, I believe, for Paul Volcker, which is shocking uh, to a guy so young uh, could have been there. But you were actually Paul Volcker's assistant as a former chairman or emeritus chairman at the Fed. Is that right? Worked on a uh, project with him, yeah, before uh, in, the, in a few years ago. Yeah, so you were kind of in the room around all this talk. What I want to pivot to a little bit now is hearing about what you're doing today in private markets uh, and how this sort of background context influences your view of what you do today in private markets. Yeah, so what I focus on is mostly private markets, technology, um, uh, uh, software, AI uh, companies, fintech, uh, blockchain, Web3, et cetera. So the, I think the biggest application is um, um, valuations of startups, of Web3 blockchain companies of um, of private companies are all subject to macroeconomic changes. Now, some of the some of the valuation numbers uh, of private startups don't change on a day to day basis. Well, in crypto, it does change every every day. Right. So, because so you effectively have created instant liquidity uh, in these markets through the technology of digital assets. So, where venture stakes might have not moved uh, from their marks for months on end, now you have the ability to get a price on something on really a nanosecond by nanosecond basis. Right, so so I you know one of the one of the things I do is even though some of the private uh, companies' valuations don't change on a day to day basis because they're booked to market, uh, oh, sorry, um, they're the market to the book value. You can really sort of figure out what the fair value is based on income economic data. Uh, so, for example, one of the things the Fed really does really well is they have a trade invest in New York, where every you know day they monitor fixed income equity markets when incoming data changes, some of the default rates like treasury yields. Um, uh, sort of change, uh, sort of both the Fed and the Fed, uh, Wall Street trading invest sort of uh, try to price what is fair value based on the economic, economic data. Well, in the private markets, that is not even an industry that's been developed. Most of it, everything is sort of held static. For me, I try to sort of leverage that experience to underwrite what is fair value in private markets. And so what that really means is, you know, in terms of my own thesis on the on investing in the market is, when we look at sort of uh, uh, valuations in the private market, whether it's you know private companies, pre-IPO, early stage, um, we can sort of uh, apply a macro uh, economic framework and a public market discipline to evaluating private startups. So I'll give you a concrete example: um, software startups like cybersecurity and you know uh, things like uh, Salesforce and, and uh, SaaS business models historically trade about eight to ten times uh, revenue. And, and that applies to uh, what three uh, companies? Uh, these companies have 80% gross margins. They trade at 10 times revenue. Well, what happens? Uh, and that corresponds with a default Fed funds rate of two and a half percent, which is the average for the last 10 years since the, the GFC. And then this is sort of the multiple. When multiples kind of went down, uh, sorry, when when the default rate went down, uh, because because the Fed was lowering rates to kind of juice the economy, multiples went up. And and now when uh, the Fed funds rate has gone up to almost five percent multiples have contracted, and that's what explains sort of uh, the question we see in asset prices. So there are ways to sort of, you know, underwrite what is fair value and, and, and play kind of a, an active strategy in private markets based on sort of economic data. So you connect private markets with sort of economic uh, income data. So essentially, the transmission mechanism here is through the credit cycle relative to the economic cycle, or rather the adjustments that the Fed is making with regard to prime rates and other pieces of the macroeconomic policy toolkit have this impact that you see follow through through the credit cycle availability of credit and there so and therefore uh, the asset pricing model that takes one of that that takes as one of its primary inputs the rate of interest that's right so basically there's i would call i would call three to four layers of, of rates the first layer i guess you can think of you can actually use an analogy in sort of web three right so layer one would be the fed the fed funds rate and that's controlled by the fmc Layer two, you can call that you know you, you can call that uh, the treasury yield curve. Uh, that's five-year treasury, ten-year treasury, thirty-year treasury, six months. So when layer one moves, layer two is going to move. Layer three would be other rates like mortgage-backed securities would be like private credit yields. So when the Fed moves, it takes a, a while, kind of usually a, a few days for the uh, second layer to kind of fully adjust, and then it might take a little bit longer, maybe a month or two for the third layer, the private credit market, the public credit market, the mortgage-backed securities. Um, that market, so it's kind of adjust, and then the fourth layer is the impact of that on equities, and and then you know based on that transmission, 
that's going to affect the values of the public and private equities. You're speaking my language, Joe. My brain automatically thinks <laughs> in abstraction layers. I think it's uh, all the time I spent doing tech work early in my career. Uh, we're going to have you back to do a capital asset pricing model tutorial for our audience. But it is, I think, important uh, for people to understand a little bit of the framework here. Because what's interesting to me, and it's such a great uh, coincidence that we have you here today to talk about this, is we had this period where we saw all this negative news in the space in terms of default and what we had, uh, default risk, I should say, because we saw some negative stories coming out about Binance, about digital currency group and some of its subsidiaries. And yet, and yet, we had price moving in the opposite direction of what you would predict. Why? Because of expectations of inflation data and therefore the macroeconomic policy response of the Fed and other global central banks. And I think it was puzzling to a lot of people in the space who looked at this and said, well, I don't get it, right? We see all this negative news and yet prices are going up. And I think you've just articulated very clearly the model for why that's so. Exactly. I would, I would say the, the biggest thing that uh, folks need to realize is that um, the stock market, uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and just stocks are a forward-looking machine of what the uh, economic environment and the rate environment is going to look like in the next 6 to 12 months. So, so you know, even today's GDP data that came out um, was a lagging indicator describing what happened last year. But the market is looking ahead. And I think that applies to both, you know, assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and assets like the, uh, the stock market. So really, I think what, what the reason I think you're seeing like an improvement in, in risk, risk sentiment is because, because we've seen um, uh, negative inflation for the first time in December, month over month, and inflation is going down, and the street and, and market participants are, for, are uh, extrapolating that in the next six to 12 months, if this sort of trend continues, then what does that mean for Fed policy? And what the market seems to think is that based on this trend, uh, the market is uh, is pricing in a lower inflation, and the Fed might even pause or pivot, and that I think I think is what's driving investor sentiment in, uh, and improvements in the last um, since the beginning of the year. We'll add DCF analysis to the future tutorial, Joe. Uh, I want to pivot back to something that we were just talking about in terms of this negative news because we have some new news out today on FTX. Hopes have been raised by the new management of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange. FTX. According to sources speaking exclusively to the New York Post, Wall Street executives representing FTX creditors are growing increasingly optimistic about fund recovery. We actually have Charlie Gasparino, who broke the story, booked on the show for a week from today, so we get to talk to him about that. According to the Post, the CEO of FTX, the new CEO, I should say, John Ray, obviously replacing Sam Bankman-Fried, could recover as much as two-thirds of the approximately eight billion dollars lost by FTX. That's because he was able to find around five billion dollars worth of liquid assets. Obviously, that's a non-trivial sum. That's good news, of course, particularly for creditors and for users of that platform. The bad news is that the recovery could take as long as two years. Also, valuing many of these assets may be quite challenging. Those assets include illiquid cryptocurrencies or venture capital. We've also learned the full list of FTX creditors for the first time. Decrypt says court documents reveal the creditors include tech companies such as Apple, Netflix, and WeWork to competitors like Coindesk and even news outlets like the Wall Street Journal and Coindesk. Joe, you know, obviously this is a, a story uh, that has been dominating news cycles. It's literally the story that people who know nothing about cryptocurrency yeah. ask me about uh, when uh, people hear what I do for a living. Joe, what's your take on FTX and more broadly on what the impact has been in private markets because of this spectacular collapse. Well, first of all, it's 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 really an unfortunate news, um, and I hope you know um, investors and customers are are, are doing okay. Um, I would say in terms of impact, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, repercussions um, in in the private markets since uh, this um, uh, event uh, unfolded uh, late last year. One is um, like let's break it down by sort of stakeholders. So now when it comes to, first of all, when it comes to uh, the existing investors that are in this uh, in FTX, you're seeing a few of them have written apology letters to their investors um, and even um, and have uh, some, of, some of which have been released publicly. And so uh, B, you're seeing um, these firms uh, heightening their internal due diligence criteria. And I think out for investors that were not in FTX, so for example, my firm, we were not investors in FTX. Um, uh, and other investment firms, everybody is also kind of hiding their, their own due diligence criteria. So I think this really um, 
has sort of sent a shock to the to the to the investment community. Now, when it comes to the uh, customers, obviously, it, it would be great if customers can can sort of um, uh, recover as much as possible. I think some of the process here in, involved include one. Uh, I've seen some of the reports on on some of the holdings by Alameda. You know, Alameda has invested in you know dozens and dozens of different uh, uh, investments, some of which were investments in funds in companies. So it, it and, will. And by the way, for anyone who may not know, Alameda, of course, was the sister company of FTX uh, that essentially was making prop bets, making uh, speculative bets about the future of varying uh, various uh, protocols and also venture capital bets, apparently, uh, and things that were illiquid. So this is the challenge, and they seem to have shared balance sheet exposure, and that's the the background context. I guess I should say allegedly, according to uh, allegedly, clients. yeah. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, so so what, what would happen in this case is um, the investments, if the investment dollars into venture capital funds and startups can be recovered, then they can be sort of moved back onto a taking balance sheet and then be be and then be distributed back to the creditors, um, the customers. Um, now, some of um, so I've, I think some of the those investments will unfortunately not be able to be recovered. The reason is, for example, if let's say Alameda uh, FTS's you know sister organization had invested in a venture capital fund and the fund is willing to return that dollar money one for one, then 100% of that investment will be returned to FTX balance sheet and then would, which would be, made, would be made available to the creditors. However, if let's say um, uh, uh, Alameda made an investment in a, in a cryptocurrency, let's say when it was trading at $100 and now the, the market value has gone to, t- to $10, unfortunately that will probably not be fully recovered. And so uh, it looks like you know, this amount of recovery is likely from um, those investments where the money can still be kind of recovered, whether it was a kind of fund investment, a liquid investment where the value hasn't really changed and, and folks are willing to uh, you know, kind of return the funds. Yeah, uh, I noticed that uh, Paul English in, in one of the uh, chats on Real Vision website is pointing out this question about what's happening right now uh, in terms of the layoffs in the space. It just so happens our next story, Paul, is about exactly that. The London-based exchange Luno is cutting 35% of its global staff. Obviously, that's a big number. According to Forecast News, this means around 340 workers will be affected. Here's the point that most people need to know Luna is a subsidiary of the troubled cryptocurrency conglomerate DCG, that's Digital Currency Group, Barry Silbert Shop, uh, that also owns Genesis, that also owns Grayscale Investments, which controls GBTC, and also owns Coindesk. In a note to employees shared partially on the Luna website, CEO Marcus Swanpole blamed, quote, unforeseen and very extreme events in the industry. This gets back into the broader conditions that we've been talking about here. He said the sheer scale and speed of the events means even planned mitigating measures were not enough. Swanpole said the notable crypto collapses created, quote, a significantly more constrained funding environment with the markets focusing, shifting from long-term investments to shorter-term profitability. And by the way, uh, we could also add the broader macroeconomic conditions, contraction of credit uh, and contraction of financial conditions. He also blamed, quote, negative market impact on market sentiment and consequently on growth and revenue for our business, along with our peers and our competitors. Boy, part and parcel of the same conversation we've been having here, Joe. Yeah, it, it, it's probably a reflection of both um, the declining uh, uh, kind of crypto asset prices and also a, a, a tougher funding environment because my, 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 my hypothesis would be before when rates were near zero, when the, you know, when the layer one rate was near zero and the layer two like treasury yields were also near zero, you could borrow a layer three, you know, at the, in the private credit, public credit market for like a really good rate. Let's call it three to four percent. Now, the layer one rate, the Fed rates almost up to five and the treasuries up to four to five. And so some of the private lending rates have gone up to 12 percent. And that's like a really, really expensive rate to borrow. 
I think secondly, in a tougher economic environment, the lenders are also doing two things. One is not only are they charging more, which makes it more expensive to borrow, B, they're also not lending as much because they have to, in a, in a, in a recessionary environment, there's, a, there's a, an indicator that the Fed tracks is called a, a default rate on uh, default rate of, of the underlying um, uh, kind of borrowers. So what the lenders are doing is they're, they're, they're you know, pricing a higher probability that some of these borrowers might, might go bankrupt, and that's probably why they're also not lending out credit. And so, you know, when you got a double whammy like that, it's it's hard for companies to borrow credit. Um, and I think when you combine the fact that uh, a lot of customers are probably withdrawing their um, amount from the platform, I think that's why there's a lot of financial pressure on these on these organizations. You know, if if you know what what I've been kind of talking to other investment firms in the industry about is, so this is obviously a huge reset in um, tech and in in, in, in Web three. Um, if a company can survive this winter, it'll probably come out the other side stronger. So, and a key to survive, surviving this winter is one, to have enough of a, a balance sheet of a lot of cash, B, to cut down the burn rate so that you can sort of still make payroll and then, um, you know, sort of last long enough for the market to recover. Right. Hey, Joe, you said double whammy. How about a triple whammy? One of the spaces, <laughs> significant uh, challenges in terms of headwinds that they're facing in the wake of FTX is additional regulatory headwinds. U.S. Democratic Senator and longtime crypto critic Elizabeth Warren has warned more industry failures will happen unless regulation is toughened up. She said, quote, for all their talk of innovation and financial inclusion, crypto industry giants from FTX to Celsius to Voyager are collapsing under the weight of their own fraud, deceit, and gross mismanagement. And when they sink, they take a lot of honest investors down with them, close quote. Well, you know, this is a, an interesting story here. Obviously, uh, there's certainly some truth to that, uh, but you have to wonder about the, the broader context of what's going to happen uh, in the industry, particularly if, if the sort of regulatory framework that comes is one that isn't as thoughtful as maybe it could be. Uh, I should say Warren called on regulators, including the Securities Exchange Commission and banking authorities, to double down on the tools they already have. This is such a delicate balancing act, Joe. We want to protect investors, obviously. We want to make sure uh, that people who are bad actors in the space who commit fraud are prosecuted. Uh, and yet, at the same time, the risk is this this sort of broader headwind to the space, maybe not targeted as well as it could be. Uh, these are very complex, very new technologies, very challenging to regulate in a way that ma maintains investor protections and yet also maintains an environment where you can have this kind of growth uh, and creative uh, sort of development of new technology. Uh, what's your thought on this, particularly in relation to the potential headwind in the private markets from regulatory moves? Yeah, so you know, you know, I've been a student of you know business and financial markets history. It's 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 a it's a, it's a pattern where innovation always outpaces regulation, and the regulators right. have to catch up. So what happened this episode is nothing new to what happened decades ago. Um, if you if you look back in uh, instances, so um, so I think what's certain is that uh, regulations are coming. Um, I think some of the um, uh, some of the things we've seen um, will heighten the, uh, um, the the pace at which uh, the, reg the regulators are going to come out. The government's going to come up with regulations. So I will, I, 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 and I think that's a good thing because that's going to put more legal framework around this industry. And once there's uh, clear guidelines for um, this industry, once re regulations catches up with uh, innovation, I think that's going to invite more uh, innovators and uh, institutions to come into the industry. You know. Our view, and I think the view of other investment firms, is that um, this industry is here to stay. It's just going through a very uh, painful reset, and so you know there will be survivors, um, um, you know, uh, in out of this sort of uh, market reset in Web three, and um, and there will be regulations coming. So it would be good if the companies um, that survive and the new new ones will kind of build themselves around the framework, and I think that's going to really help this industry mature. Um, right. This is what happened, you know, historically, you know, in the in the you know in the in the last century. So it's nothing new. It's sort of a a pattern that's repeating. Yeah, it's so true. It's such an important and nuanced point, Joe. The more things change, the more they remain the same. I was just grousing earlier this morning. I tried to open a meeting in Microsoft Outlook, and it automatically kicked me into Teams instead of Zoom. And I pointed out that this is precisely the kind of bundling challenge that got Microsoft into trouble, or at least analogous to the kind of 
bundling decision that got Microsoft into trouble back in the late 1990s. Uh, and remember, Microsoft was nearly broken up. A judge named Penfield Jackson issued a ruling that was going to break Microsoft into three distinct companies. Ultimately, it was overturned on appeal as a very complicated process. I guess what's different here today is that effectively, these technologies are also financial products or resemble financial products, resemble securities in some cases. And so the regulatory framework around it becomes that much more complicated from a legal perspective, from a regulatory perspective. We have kind of fragmented, uh, sort of uh, fragmented, I guess, regulation and oversight here in the US compared to something like uh, the UK, which has one principal regulator. Some people believe that's a benefit. You have things regulated at the state level, you have banks regulated at the federal level. It's a really complex mosaic of regulation here. And when you add this sort of direct financial component, we were talking about this earlier with the liquidity in private markets, essentially, you can get a price on a venture capital investment or de facto venture capital investment in terms of the way it performs in in seconds, uh, rather than something you might not get a price, you'd have to call a guy like uh, Joe Chow and say, Hey, Joe, what's the what's the value of this? Now you just see it on your screen, you can go to coin market cap, you can go to coin gecko and you get a price. That's right. Um, and so you know, our, our hope is that um, the regulations will be will be clear, and will be um, will and will provide clear guidelines to innovators on how to build uh, Web three uh, innovations. Um, you know, I, I just want to bring up something that you know has been uh, top of our our, our um, priorities is this whole AI um, sort mm -hmm. of uh, you know buzz. Um, and and you know um, right now there's you know the tech industry is going through a, pre a pretty painful reset, but amongst all of this you know. You know, AI seems to be um, the next sort of uh, uh, platform for innovation. And so, in fact, you know, I've met with several entrepreneurs this you know, recently who are saying that they're out, they're now building new companies on top of OpenAI's platform. Right. So I think what that shows is, yes, like we're going through a market reset, both in tech and, and, and Web3. But at the same time, as long as the technology is, the platform is legitimate and solid, there uh, and and you no know, open AI becoming sort of a new a, a newer platform. It's going to allow a lot of new companies to be built on top of that platform. By the same token, I think when you know we come out of the reset, when blockchain becomes a more mature industry, there'll be many. It's going to be a new platform that allows many new companies to be, to be built on the blockchain. And, and you know you can even argue uh, the AI platform and, and the blockchain platform can work together, and there'll be cross um, sort of integration between blockchain and AI. And there's there's going to be a lot of innovations and companies being built between these two platforms. So, so uh, despite the market reset, you know, I think um, if you're an optimist, which I am and, and, and entrepreneurs are, there's a lot of things to be excited about. Joe, sure, let me ask you this. What are some of those overlaps? What might some of those synergies be between AI, which is something that fascinates me and I know fascinates you. We've been talking about it here on Real Vision and the digital asset cryptocurrency blockchain space. Yeah, so uh, let me start with, with 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 some of the things I've been hearing from entrepreneurs on the OI, on the on the OpenAI sort of uh, front. So, OpenAI is basically um, you know um, uh, sort of this whole move, uh, this whole sort of innovation is has matured to a point where this AI platform can be integrated with existing solutions and and become and be distributed to like businesses and consumers. So the reason that one of the reasons Microsoft invested, you know, you can sort of you know read some some of their um, uh, press releases and their um, uh, earnings uh, earnings call transcripts is Microsoft plans to uh, not only invest in OpenAI, which they have invested, but they also plan to uh, integrate that AI solution to some of their um, uh, enterprise applications, whether it's Office, whether it's Teams. And so the AI is going to do many um, things um, uh, to augment uh, kind of human human work. So and, and there's a lot of startups right now. I just met one that's in fintech where they're trying to build their fintech platform, their underwriting platform on top of the OpenAI platform. And so you're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs rebuilding technologies being built on AI, uh, on, on OpenAI. So you can sort of think, think of like, you know, in the last 10 years, we had cloud and AWS and Google became big cloud providers. Now there's a lot of cloud-based companies, Snowflake, what, what have you. By the same token, now there's an OI, AI uh, platform and a lot of startups, a lot of innovators are building new applications and software on top of um, on top of um, AI. And and blockchain is is you know, I think the next sort of a uh, um, uh, generation of it's, it's one of the next uh, uh, innovations to be to you know to mature. And there will be many new applications being built on the blockchain. Now, to what extent they interact, I think will be what you know the innovators right. innovators will do. But I think you know we're seeing if we saw the internet 
in the 2000s, the 1990s, as sort of one example instance of that, the cloud being another example of that. And I think AI is next, and then the next is blockchain. So I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunity in the market. And, you know, despite the market fluctuations, I think, you know, I would just look at the fundamentals of these businesses and determine, um, kind of determine investments um, via, via that channel. You know, one of the novel applications I heard for artificial intelligence in the blockchain distributed asset uh, digital tech space uh, is the idea of doing code audits to effectively attempt to find security flaws within smart contracts. I guess that sort of works in the opposite direction as well, because the uh, the bad actors will have that technology to search for vulnerabilities. Uh, but it is sort of interesting to think about just some of the ways that we might have the overlap uh, between digital assets and AI, which certainly seems to be coming as though, yeah. uh, so though you point out, it's always challenging uh, to see in advance exactly you know, what that leading technology is going to be that causes that dovetail. So a lot of VCs and myself included are now hunting for ideas and, and entrepreneurs and, and opportunities where you can invest at the intersection of uh, AI and, uh, and blockchain. And I, I suspect that you'll hear many, many more new buzzwords in the coming two to five to 10 years of yeah of things that will develop within within these new tweeting platforms. Well, we can virtually guarantee it's going to be in the pitch decks before that, whether or not it will actually be realized uh, in the next yeah. six months or so, that remains to be seen. Uh, but I'm sure it's going to be a topic we're going to be hearing more about. I should say, Joe, it's nearly time for viewer questions. But before that, for those watching on the Real Vision website, first, thank you. If you haven't signed up yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to get early access to Real Vision content. And it's always free Real Vision crypto content, I should say. Tomorrow, you'll be able to watch the latest Ral's Adventures in Crypto in full. Ral spoke with Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital. You don't want to miss that. Again, that's realvision.com forward slash crypto. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell as well. Okay, on to viewer questions for Joe. Uh, this one comes to us from Paul on the Real Vision website. Uh, Coindesk estimates that over 29,000 jobs have been cut across the crypto industry since April of last year. With all of these recently unemployed crypto workers, do you expect we'll see them back in the space with their own projects starting up? I love that question. Paul is clearly an optimist talking about this kind of uh, almost Schumpeterian creative destruction. When you see people get laid off, maybe they open up uh, their own shops. Joe, what do you think about this as someone who invests in those private companies? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, we are seeing, um, you know, I, I think that 20, in the, in the 2008, 2010 recession, what you saw was, there were a lot of layoffs, and then amongst them were a lot of new innovation, new companies being born. And some of those have finally matured by 2020. They went public amongst them, you know, some of the IPOs we've seen. Um, you're seeing another round of layoffs now in, in, in traditional tech. And so, you know, whether we've seen like the, the, the even, even the, the, the mega tech companies have laid off, and some of the newer tech companies are laying off workers. And, and I don't think we've seen the worst in layoff in, in technology um, uh, because based on what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing in, in the private markets, many. Uh, startups, venture-backed startups, are um, trying to cut costs on employee costs so that they kind of extend their cash flow a little bit longer. And it, right now, it's really hard to raise money, whether it's equities or, or debt. Equities because the VCs have slowed down because their LPs aren't investing as much. Debt because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, uh, private credit uh, yields have just become so expensive at more than 10% a year, 12% a year. And a lot of companies don't want to pay that, so they have to. Uh, and, that, and that reflects tightening financial conditions of the perception of increased default probability. Exactly, and that's where you sort of can um, can, can sort of, uh, you know, kind of connect uh, startup operations and macroeconomics together. Is is right. is um, is these uh, startups are just? Well, I think what the startups are trying to do is they're trying to raise some equity with that, and they're also trying to cut some cost. So hopefully both will kind of work in their favor to extend, to strengthen their balance sheet and, ex and extend their cash flow weight. Now, I would put Web3 and blockchain companies in the same bucket as tech companies because, because they're just companies, right? Companies have revenue, they have cash, and, and, and they, have, they have to pay for employees. So I would say that framework, that logic applies to Web3 companies. So just like 10 years ago, you had a lot of tech um, executives come on to start new companies, I would expect a lot of um, uh, Web3 and, and, and company uh, company executives and employees come out to start new companies or join new companies. Um, so I think there will be a lot more layoff this year. Among them, there'll be many um, talented entrepreneurs and engineers starting new companies. You know, myself, I'm talking to several as we speak. And um, 
And, you know, I think another thing that I've, I've really kind of realized recently is it's really hard to innovate when you work for a company. Like to innovate, to build a new product, you really have to come out on your own to build something and then either be acquired or go IPO. So, you know, I, I expect there will be many, many new uh, uh, entrepreneurs coming to the market th this year. Yeah, by the way, it's one of the reasons why I stay at Real Vision. They do allow us to innovative here, uh, innovate here. And even my crazy ideas sometimes become part of the show. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, Joe, you talked about this sort of uh, sort of interaction between private markets and macroeconomics. This is what your specialty is uh, and what we're always pleased to have you on to talk about. Interestingly enough, Ralph on the Real Vision website asks a question that is precisely in that wheelhouse. How bad has the impact of FTX and other negative crypto news been on private equity investor sentiment in the space? That is a great question. I'm very curious uh, to hear how folks who are allocating to you guys think about exactly that question, what you've heard from them. Yeah, so there's, I think there's two sides to the question. One is, um, how has that impacted uh, LPs, investments in venture capital and private equity funds? This, uh, LPs are, you know, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, endowments, pensions, et cetera. Um, they're the allocators that allocate between private equity, private credit, public markets. And then the second part of that question, uh, of the answer is how um, the, the fund managers, the VCs and the PE guys are investing in startups. I would say, let me start with the, the first one, which is um, because tech has performed so well in the last like 10, 10 years in the last cycle, um, tech, because it's, let, for example, let's say a pension fund allocates 80% to the stock market and 20% to, to venture and, and, and Web3. Let's say that has done so well, it's doubled, it's tripled. It's really become a bigger portion of the portfolio, but based on the laws of the pension, the bylaws, maybe some of the, some, let's say it's a pension of a state. They only out appropriate a certain percentage of investment dollars towards a certain asset class. Because tech and venture has done well, it's become, let's say, 30% now. So now the pension funds have to cut back and even, even sell some of their stakes in like these, these, these recent PE funds to go back to that 20% um, budget. So that's why you're seeing it's been harder for VC and PE funds to raise LP money from the pension funds, the several funds, for that. That's one of the reasons. So now, because the VC and PE funds have less money to become from their LPs, they're also investing less. So that's what contributes to one of the slowdown in sort of funding. Now, how does this FTX thing impact everything? It hasn't impacted traditional software fintech investing. It's impacted much more Web3 investing. Uh, and I think one is because investors are just fearful. B is they have to probably do much more diligence and probably their investment committee is forcing them to, you know, just, you know, triple the amount of due diligence. Um, and some have even sort of stopped right. on what to Web3. Um, so it's, it's one of the consequences of sort of this whole transmission mechanism. By the way, I have to say, for viewers who are relatively new uh, to the financial side of this, if you're listening to Joe and you're a little bit confused, don't worry about it. You're hearing about how private markets actually work, how they function, and what the mechanism is for allocation of capital. This is something that folks maybe who've just been involved in public markets, example, on the equity side, just may not have heard of understanding how sovereign wealth funds, how uh, pension funds allocate uh, in private markets is such an important piece of the financial puzzle and something that makes markets very opaque for people who, you know, maybe have just heard, remember from their uh, from their high school or college days, uh, the overview of how investing works. Well, you know, people invest in, you know, in, in retail individuals invest uh, in public markets. You, you know, you buy a share of Facebook if you believe that uh, Facebook's revenues are going to increase based on the net present value of, uh, you know, the company. This is really about how private markets work, and it's such an important explainer for people to get. And it's a really great to have you here unpacking this for us. I know it differs a bit by sector, by region, but give folks a little bit of an understanding of how big private markets are 
relative to public markets on the credit side, on the equity and, uh, side, and also a little bit about how those allocations work, for example, from sovereign hedge funds, from pension funds, and from other allocators, Joe. Yeah, so, well, uh, so it's private markets are, are, are much smaller than public markets, uh, but they're much more dynamic. Um, so I'll give you a few stats. So right now in the U.S. and abroad, there's about a thousand or so unicorns. These are private companies that are worth a billion dollars or more. So from now we can sort of extrapolate what's the market size. Um, but I will say there's a few things that have really changed in the private markets um, in the last sort of 10 or 12 years than, than in the 1980s and 90s. One is private companies are, can stay private longer. Right. And, and, and so what that means is they can raise more private funding and stay private uh, longer. And staying private longer has its benefits. It's because you don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day fluctuations of the stock price, quarterly earnings. You can really focus on execution. Um, and one of the one of the one of the, the one of the um, one of the factors that lengthened sort of helped private companies stay private longer was I think during the Obama administration they sort of uh, increased um, the number of investors that can be that can that can hold shares in the private company from this like is the Reg A Reg A plus legislation that was really so important in changing those dynamics. Right. So I, I, I clearly recall in 2012 when Facebook had to go public, I remember reading an article where they said Facebook now has more than 100, 100 investors. They have to go public. Well, now that number is up to 500. So what that means is you can be. So if Facebook, right. all things equal, Facebook would have might have stayed private, you know, hypothetically. So private companies are staying private longer. There right. is a renewed interest in entrepreneurship, Yes. Which, which is people can work remote. Tech has made a lot of new companies. And then in terms of allocations, let's call it a pension fund. Let's call it a, a, a U.S. state's pension fund. Based on the bylaws of the pension fund and what that state, uh, state legislature appropriated, a pension fund can invest in several asset classes, uh, the stock market, the bond market, public, public, public markets, real estate, cash, and private markets. Private markets is divided into private equity, LBO buyouts, venture capital. And I, I know Web3 is counted as a part of venture capital now for these pension funds. And so there's a percentage that the government has mandated that these pension funds to hold. So a, max, these, a maximum of ceiling, essentially, so that they don't get ex excessive exposure uh, to highly illiquid assets. So exactly. So in, in that context, sometimes these numbers go out of bounds. So let's say the venture market has outperformed and doubled. Well, that percentage has doubled, all things equal. So then now the pension fund has to either invest less or sell some of those stakes to go back to the to the percentages. This is essentially portfolio rebalancing. As you get outperformance on your private uh, investments, they become a larger percentage of the portfolio. You got to sell them down uh, to meet your mandates uh, in terms of re regulatory uh, and compliance components. By the way, lest people think that this is kind of an academic discussion uh, about how to lower average weighted cost of capital and return on equity, the way that this affects you as an investor, if you're a retail investor, is with a challenge on this, the sort of the flip side, the dark side of all this, obviously it increases the ability uh, of, of, of companies and entrepreneurs to raise capital. Uh, it has a lot of positive side effects. But one of the negative components of this is companies staying uh, private for longer has effectively shifted a lot of the uh, value creation to the earlier part of the cycle. VCs have gotten very rich uh, and where you might have been able to buy a company uh, here uh, in the public markets, invest early in it now because it's coming as a more mature company in the market. Some of that hockey stick like growth potential that you would be hoping for as an investor has already been realized in the private markets. That's the challenge. That's the balancing act uh, here that uh, that regulators, that companies, and that investors are always trying to dynamically sort out in their minds when they invest. Absolutely agreed. And um, so the private markets are booming, and I think that includes you know Web three companies, blockchain companies, and we're seeing a lot of uh, good activities. And you know, I'm really excited to be in this industry. Yeah. Joe, this is an incredible conversation. You're one of the few people out there who can wrap together macroeconomic conditions uh, and what happens in early stage investing in the most entrepreneurial and dynamic companies. Very often, these are seen as just totally different tracks. You're one of the few people who can really bring this together for our viewers. We always appreciate you coming here, and I hope we can do this again soon. Let me ask you this. We've covered a tremendous amount of ground here, broad array of topics we've discussed. Final points, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with. Yeah, so I think starting with uh, macro is, um, you know, we are heading into a market, uh, we are in the market reset and likely a recession, but it will not be a severe recession. It would probably be like a mild recession. It's kind of like a common cold. It's not a severe flu, you know, if you analogize the economy to a human being. So what that means is um, uh, this is a healthy reset, the market. And so this is, this allows the market to kind of consolidate and build for the next bull market, you know, fingers crossed the next 
five to 10 years. The second is in um, uh, sort of blockchain web three, there's still a lot of innovations happening. I think, you know, with these layoffs, there's gonna be a lot of new companies being born. Uh, the uh, private companies in, in, in this new, uh, uh, on these new platforms that can survive this kind of, you know, this reset will come out the other side stronger. And the ways they survive is either by to increase more rev, uh, cash on the balance sheet or cut costs. Um, and then on the on the private market side, we're seeing uh, uh, this whole AI becoming a platform that enables a lot many new companies to be built on top of the a, the AI platform. I think the same is going to happen with blockchain. And I think that's what. Um, so despite all the you know, market sort of negativity, there's actually a lot to look forward to. Yeah, very well said. I'll keep my takeaways very short, and there are three points that Real Vision viewers and listeners already know. First, of course, is that macro matters. I think it's very easy uh, sometimes for people who are very passionate about technology, who are very passionate uh, about developing uh, in the Web3 space to forget about the fact that there is a macro substrate here that matters tremendously in terms of availability of credit, in terms of availability uh, of equity capital, and all of the rest that Joe has just talked about here, incredibly important points. Secondly, I would say, Private markets are an incredibly interesting aspect of the space. And if you're interested in understanding what's happening in Web3, if you're interested in what's happening in digital assets more broadly, you have to understand a little bit how private markets work uh, because it's guys like Joe who are talking to allocators who are being that bridge, uh, who are allocating capital, assessing risk, figuring out where the opportunities are. Such an important point. And finally, uh, third, something else that we're passionate about here on Real Vision is AI. Obviously, this is a topic that is increasingly important across the tech space, across the investing space, and more broadly, I think, across the business and uh, traditional sort of you know, general news landscape. This is a story that's going to affect everything, and I believe that Web3 and digital assets will be no exception. Uh, Joe, really a pleasure to have you here. I hope we can do this again soon, man. Thanks so much, Ash. Great being here today. I should say, for those of you watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and please hit the notification bell. That way you can always stay up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis from Real Vision Crypto. If you're not yet a Real Vision Crypto subscriber, don't forget, it's free. Head over to realvision.com slash crypto today. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest technical analysis from Dave the Wave. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto daily briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Oh!